0: And, you know, one of the things I have found working with students there, I've also done some teaching in more informal settings within Tajikistan as well, is that students there really appreciate education and are self-reflective of their own education in a way that I haven't always found with students uh, here in the U.S. Now, I want to switch gears to your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're now working at Nazarbayev University in Kazakhstan. Mm-hmm. Can you speak about your work there? Yeah, so I've been working at NU at Nazarbayev University for uh, about three and a half years now. And Nazarbayev University is it's a very unique institution within the region, and and in many ways is uh, very similar to the University of Central Asia that that the imam is sponsoring there. I see. It it is the first institution of its kind within the post-Soviet regions of of Central Asia in the sense that it's all English medium, that it operates by all the the standards of of a Western institution, that we have complete academic freedom there, which is something most other academic institutions do not have there, even within Kazakhstan. We, we have an autonomous status that is not granted to most other institutions there. So it, it is an opportunity for me to teach in the same area of the world that I research, mm-hmm. to, to really have a meaningful impact in a society that is going through a very dramatic period of, of transformation, And, you know, one of the things I have found working with students there, I've also done some teaching in more informal settings within Tajikistan as well, is that students there really appreciate education and are self-reflective of their own education in a way that I haven't always found with students uh, here in the U.S. Wow. That, That are, you know, really have an appreciation for the sort of shortcomings they may have had in her earlier education. You know, in most of these countries, the Soviet legacy is still very much present and, right. in the, within the educational system. And and beyond that, you know, the, the funding that's provided, the resources are provided for education in most of these countries is abysmal. You know, teachers are very poorly paid. They're simply not given the resources to, to be able to do a proper job. So, so it's very refreshing to, to be able to have this opportunity to, to teach students in a place where one really gets a sense that they appreciate the education that, that they're receiving and, and and also to to be able to work with, within an environment that is really grappling with a lot of the questions that are the focus of, of my own research and those of my colleagues, of thinking about this relationship between religion and modernity, about mm-hmm. what we were discussing earlier about the question of secularization right. and about the, the public role of religion, for example. You know, these are major questions that many countries in the former Soviet Union are grappling with today and, and something that, you know, I would hope as a result of being in my classroom, students there are, are being given some of the tools to be able to really constructively engage with these questions and, and help their society. Um, and it's the same type of mission I think the University of Central Asia is now undertaking there as well. So it's, it's very exciting. One of your current research focuses is Ismailis in Central Asia, mm-hmm. uh, Iran, Afghanistan, Tajikistan. Specifically, I believe you're looking into how they became Ismailis, the people back then, from 12th to 18th century. Could you speak about this? Because I think it might be surprising to some to hear that there were conversions going on mm-hmm. d- during this period in Central Asia. Yeah, well, it's probably not an accident that... I myself am am a convert to Ismailism. I also (laughs) happen to study the topic of of conversion. But what I would say is I think one of the things I I have been arguing in my research is that a lot of the ways we think about conversion uh, within Ismailism, more broadly within within the study of of religion, is is we, we tend to think about the example of, of individuals who convert to religion, so people like me, for example, people like Nasir Husro or Hassan Sabadis, individuals who go through a very intensive period of personal search, who, who go through a period of intellectual engagement, and, and then decide to embrace a new tradition. And I would argue that, that my example is actually very atypical when we look more, more broadly at the uh, historical process of conversion to, to Ismailism. And what I'm engaging with in my research now is I'm I'm asking a very fundamental question here, that when we look at the geographical distribution of where Ismailis are today, of where they have been for the last 500 years, we notice a very interesting pattern. So our imams, at several periods in history, have exercised direct political power, of course, under the Fatimids mm-hmm. in Egypt, later in the Alamut period in northern Iran. And what's interesting is that after those periods of political power came to an end, Ismailism within those areas eventually disappeared as well. If we look where Ismailis are today, where the major centers of Ismaili communities are today, and again for about the past 500, 600 years or so, they're in places like India, places like Balakshan, which were very much on the sort of margins of of Islamic civilization. They're not in places like Cairo or in in Baghdad or in Nishapur, in the major urban areas of of the Islamic world. And and so this is an interesting puzzle that I've been exploring in in my research. And the other part of, of the puzzle is that when we look at the historical roles of a lot of our dais, of the people who have gone out and professed Ismailism again I have focused particularly on the case of, of Nasr khusrau is that we, we think of these figures as as scholars, as mm-hmm. intellectual figures, people who wrote books, who engaged deeply with ideas. But the communities in which they were living were largely non-literate communities. You know, these are peasants, farmers, nomads even. And the question I'm asking is that what does is Ismailism mean to a mountain farmer, a mountain nomad. Um, what is their understanding of, of what Nasr right. al was teaching? And, and what does it mean to be an Ismaili and a place where Muslims themselves hmm. are a minority? And one of the interesting phenomena we see with the example of Nasr al if we look at other dais in the Indic tradition, people like Pir Sadruddin, Pir Kabiruddin, is that in the centuries after their life, they Their own legacies take on a much broader significance within these communities. They become very broadly revered as saints, as holy people. We know among many of the Indian Dais, they are viewed as holy persons by not only by Ismailis, but by by Sunnis, by Asharis, even by Hindus as well. One of the things I've come to appreciate in my research on the legacy of Nasir Husro is how for, for much of the history after his death, It was really among Mm non-Ismailis that that he came to be appreciated and recognized. His shrine became a major center of pilgrimage among all all types of Muslims within Balakshan. We find records of patronage, of uh, rulers providing support to his shrine, rulers who at the same time were going out and persecuting, massacring. And Mm -hmm. in fact, there seems to have been a sort of lack of awareness of the fact that he even was an Ismaili. He he comes Mm -hmm. to be seen just more generally as a sort of holy man, and, and this is happening in India and elsewhere as well among these Ismaili saints. So the, the process that I am exploring is how these Da'is, uh, these missionaries who we know historically were Ismaili missionaries who were bringing Ismailism to specific parts of the Muslim world then come to enjoy this broader legacy, this broader renown within the societies in which they lived. And then through a very long process in later times, how the Ismaili Dawah is then able to essentially bring a more Ismaili consciousness surrounding mm. their legacy and to to really spread the Dawah, to spread a sort of Ismaili consciousness in a way that draws upon their legacy. I see. So I would not characterize it necessarily as a straightforward process of people converting of to Ismailism, but rather... A, a very long process of how these saints' legacies then become sort of reintroduced, in a way, mm-hmm. by members of, of the Dawah through the institutions in a way that brings a more closer consciousness of, of having an Ismaili identity that we see happening in, in later times, particularly in the 18th and 19th century. So so this is, I think, in a nutshell, the focus of, of my current research project. I've, going back to where Ismailis live. Mm-hmm. Today, we know that there are some Ismailis in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Are there, a, are there others elsewhere and have you had a chance to meet Ismailis nearby? I have. There are. At, at the institution where I work at Nazarbayev University, we have Ismailis who work there, who come from, from all over the world. It, it's a very uh, cosmopolitan city. My, my colleagues there, uh, again, come, come from all over the place. So we have Ismailis there from the U.S., from Canada, from from Pakistan, from Tajikistan Mm -hmm. as well. I would say that, you know, within Kazakhstan itself, uh, historically there is not an Ismaili presence there. At least since the last 500, 600 years, as I mentioned, the, the Ismaili presence in Central Asia has really been focused within the Balakshan region. I see. In, in earlier periods before the Mongol conquest, there were efforts to spread Ismailism elsewhere. We don't have any any record of, of any trace of those communities. It seems to have really persisted the longest within the Balakshan region. Then later in, in the 19th century, under the Russian Empire, and particularly in the Soviet era in the 20th century, there was a lot of... Ismailis from Balakshan, who spread out to other areas of of the Soviet Union. So, uh, especially today, there's a very large contingent working in in Russia. A significant part of the economy of Tajik Balakshan is based on labor remittances that come from Ismailis who are working in Russia and Moscow Mm. and St. Petersburg. There are smaller jamaats working elsewhere in Central Asia, so within Kazakhstan and and Almaty and and Uzbekistan as well, in Bishkek and Kyrgyzstan. So these are essentially part of the broader Balakshani diaspora, hmm. uh, I would say. And, um, of course, the situation with our Jamaat today, there are Ismailis everywhere. Because right, of the global. Exactly, and, and largely because of the way the Imams for the last several generations have really encouraged Ismailis to become active globally, to really seek opportunities right. all across the world. That we really have become a global community. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting how... That diaspora then tends to fold back in on itself in a way. That mm. In places like Central Asia, you, you have Ismailis coming from Tajikistan, but also you know I have Ismaili colleagues, like I mentioned, from Canada, from Pakistan, who are working there as well. So they become sort of new meeting places. So it, it's, a, it's a very interesting process.